Little shiny happy people there by R.A.M. to get us started here on Lavender Hill. Thank you for tuning in at 89.3 on the FM or online at kzm.org. Or perhaps you're using that handy-dandy smarter-than-a-calculator device and listening on your favorite mobile listening app like TuneIn or Next Radio. Or you could be listening up to two weeks after original broadcast date thanks to the KZUM archives, which can be found online at kzum.org slash archives. Now, that being said, we are aware there have been some archive issues of late, and we are working on making sure that those are not only repaired, but don't happen again, or at least not anytime soon. So please bear with us if that's how you like to listen to some of our programming. Anywho, I've got a whole bunch of Nebraska news for you. What a change, right? It's been a while since I've had that real emphasis on Nebraska. But let's see what we've got for you here. Uh, looking over at 1011 now, uh, Dale Kovar writing for uh, them Wednesday. Uh, UNK recognized for support of LGBTQ plus students and employees. Uh, Dateline Kearney, Nebraska, of course. The organization Campus Pride, a major resource for LGBTQ plus leadership development, diversity inclusion, and advocacy within higher education, selected the University of Nebraska at Kearney for its 2022 best of the best colleges and universities for LGBTQ plus students list. Announced Wednesday, the list includes 40 four-year schools across the U.S. Uh, that are committed to creating a safe, welcoming environment for LGBTQ plus students, faculty, and staff. Uh, each campus recognized received five out of five stars uh, there for the uh, woo, things flew away from me <laughs> five out of five stars on the campus pride index the definitive national benchmarking tool measuring lgbtq plus friendly uh, policies programs and practices unk is the only school in nebraska with a five-star rating from campus pride Oh, look out, UNL. Uh, a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a safe college environment for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, let's see here. To quote uh, Louis Olivas, uh, interim director of UNK's Office of Student Diversity and Inclusion, sometimes when people think about LGBTQ welcoming campuses, they don't think of a rural institution like UNK. But we're here to make sure our students know we're 100% student-centered, and we're here to welcome them with open arms to an institution that's both safe and affirming of who they are. We want to make sure they see themselves as lopers, which is UNL, UN, UNK's team there. Uh, located in the Nebraska Student Union, the Office of Student Diversity and Inclusion, ODI, oversees a number of programs and initiatives that raise awareness of LGBTQ plus issues, educate campus and the community, and promote an inclusive environment. Olivas went on to say to 1011 now, the visibility that we get from hosting LGBTQ friendly programming and events is so important, not only for those young people who identify as LGBTQ+, but also for campus as a whole. That exposure makes our campus a more friendly, more welcoming, and more affirming place for everyone. 
Well, there we go. Hats off to UNK uh, for making that list there. Great accomplishment. And I would love to see UNL and UNO and other four-year uh, universities and colleges in Nebraska get on that list. That would be awesome. All righty. So let's see here. What other good news? Like I said, I got a lot of good news for you. Uh, we are going to wait for the page to open up. There we go. Again, going with 1011. Now, hey, local resources, got to use what you got to use. Um, LPS school board meeting focuses on LGBTQ plus issues. Is this good or is this bad? Well, let's find out. The new LPS superintendent is already tackling some sensitive subjects and the school year has just begun. According to Samantha Burnt, writing for 1011 now on Tuesday of this past week. Um, at Tuesday's school board meeting, the first one since classes started back up, LPS Superintendent Dr. Paul Gaussman took a moment to address some controversy and confusion regarding LGBTQ plus topics in the district. Dr. Gossman addressed two big items, one being concerns about whether a certain book was available in LPS school libraries and the other a mandatory staff learning session for LPS employees like counselors and school nurses to better help transgender students and others. Dr. Gaussman's first Board of Education meeting for the school year started by addressing mandatory staff training that took place on August 10th and what the guest speaker, transgender author Ryan Salins, allegedly talked about something that has been the focal point of a complaint made in a woman's social media post. I wasn't at the board meeting. I wasn't at that training session. I don't know Ryan as well as I would like to know, but we have had Ryan on the show. And believe you me, if Ryan was doing something that I did not think was uh, appropriate, I would be calling him out on it. So that being said, I'm uh, going to quote Dr. Gaussman from the meeting on Tuesday. I want to be clear that it has been reliably reported to me by several staff members that the speaker did not say the quote that has been attributed to that speaker on social media. However, given that there still seems to be some level of disagreement about what was actually said, I, as the superintendent of schools, will be looking into this matter further and will do my best to get a sense of what staff members feel that they heard. He went on to say, actually, yeah, um, he didn't go on to say, somebody else said that. Hello, who are we quoting here? Wow, something's not quite attributed, right? Um, Gaussman said, and my point is, all of this is just recognizing where people get their data and the public needs to know that. Okay, there we go. That was Gaussman. There are also claims that Salins supports the use of puberty blockers, and he's uh, said not calling students by their preferred pronouns would be harassment. Gaussman said he's looking into all of this. Yes, I believe that Salins does believe in the use of puberty blockers, and that, like any aware individual, especially when it comes to transgender issues, not using a student's preferred pronouns and preferred name is harassment. Okay, so let's see here. The book in question is not cited in the article, but I can well imagine what that might have been because it's one that has been banned in various places. Uh, 
inappropriately, I believe. But, uh, yeah, that's what it is. Anywho, we're not going to get on to the book banning topic right now because you've heard me the last two weeks get up on that squeaky soapbox, and I really don't feel like getting up on it again for you today. So, let's see here. Do I want to go to the next news article, or should I play some music for you? How about we get that music and then we're going to talk about a school newspaper in Nebraska being shut down. All righty, so here we go. Sarah Peacock, the cool kids, thought it was appropriate since we're talking about education right now. Sarah Peacock with the cool kids from Burn the Witch. All righty, well, I hinted right before that that we were going to talk about a Nebraska school newspaper that has been shut down. And believe it or not, I had to go to the Los Angeles Times to find this one, but that's because I don't get a whole lot of local uh, news coming across my feed, so it just depends on, you know, what happens. I have to hunt for it sometimes or, you know, look around on uh, social media to find out what's going on. Uh, so an article from the Los Angeles Times from Friday of uh, last week, that would have been the 26th, uh, administrators at a Nebraska school shuttered its award-winning student newspaper just days after a last edition that included articles and editorials on LGBTQ issues, leading advocates of press freedom to call the move an act of censorship. Now, that last issue was published at the end of the school year, and I'm just hearing about it now, so I do apologize. Uh, the staff of Northwest Public Schools' 54-year-old Saga newspaper was informed May 19th of the paper's elimination. The Grand Island Independent reported three days earlier, the newspaper had printed its June edition, which included an article titled Pride and Prejudice, LGBTQIA+. On the origins of Pride Month and the history of homophobia. It also included an editorial opposing a Florida law that we've all been talking about that bans some lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity, dubbed by critics as the Don't Say Gay Law. Officials overseeing the district, which is based in Grand Island, Nebraska, have not said when or why the decision was made to eliminate the student paper, but an email from a school employee to the Independent canceling the student's paper's printing services may 22nd said it was because of the school board and superintendent are unhappy with the last issue's editorial content uh, the paper's demise also came a month after its staff was reprimanded for publishing students preferred pronouns and names uh, district officials told students they could use only names assigned at birth uh-huh grand island uh, Emma Smith, Saga's assistant editor in 2022, said the student paper was informed that the ban on preferred names was made by the school board. That decision uh, directly affected Saga staff writer Marcus Pinnell, a transgender student who saw his byline changed against his wishes to his birth name in the June issue. It was the first time that the school had officially been like, we don't really want you here, Pinnell said. You know, that was a big deal for me. Northwest Principal P.J. Smith referred the independence questions to District Superintendent Jeff Edwards, who declined to answer the questions of when and why the student paper was eliminated, saying only that it was an administrative decision. 
Some school board members have made no secret of their objection to the saga's LGBTQ content, including board president Dan Leeser, who said that, quote, most people were upset, end quote, with it. Board Vice President Zach Mader directly cited the pro-LGBTQ editorials, adding that if district taxpayers had read the last issue of Saga, they, quote, would have been like, holy cow, what is going on at our school, end quote. Uh, Sarah Rips, an attorney for the Nebraska chapter of the ACLU, is quoted as saying, it sounds like a ham-fisted attempt to censor students and discriminate based on disagreement with perspectives and articles that were featured in the student newspaper. Nebraska Press Association attorney Max uh, Kauch, K-A-U-T-S-C-H, Uh, who specializes in media law in Nebraska and Kansas, noted that press freedom is protected in the U.S. Constitution, going on to say, quote, the decision by the administration to eliminate the student newspaper violates students' rights to free speech unless the school can show a legitimate educational reason for removing the option to participate in a class that publishes award-winning materials it is hard to imagine what that legitimate reason could be. All right, this and the other articles that I've discussed today or will be discussing will be posted over to the Facebook page for Lavender Hill sometime early this afternoon. Uh, Those of you who have been listening all morning know that I've been having some technical difficulties with the computer, so I'm not going to try to post them while I'm live on the air because I don't want to interfere with how the computer wants to do things for us today. But that being said, wow. Okay. So we had good news from Carney and then not too far away, Grand Island, not so good news, right? Okay. Both with education. What the... mm. All righty. Well, we still got some um, Nebraska news for you here. And this is coming from the Archdiocese of Omaha, KATV Omaha reporting Thursday. The Roman Catholic Church's Archdiocese of Omaha has released a new policy on gender identity that will be required at all Catholic schools, including the high schools. The Archdiocese says this new policy aligns with the teachings of the church, which holds that biological sex and gender identity should remain intertwined. Um, Let's see here. To quote, trying to figure out who it is that I'm quoting here. Now we'll get that figured out. I'll just read it. Uh, It is necessary. Pardon me. It is necessary to affirm, first and foremost, that the dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God. This image and likeness finds its expression in each of two sexes as they provide an image of the power and tenderness of God with equal dignity, though in a different way. Thus, male and female are unique and complementary in their physical, moral, and spiritual aspects says the Archdiocese in their pastoral guidelines for gender dysphoria. Under the new gender identity policy that goes into effect January 1 of next year, students at all Omaha Catholic schools will be treated according to their biological sex. Uh, To quote Deacon Tim McNeil, a spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Omaha, We wanted the buy-in and the awareness of all the school communities to know what this policy was going to be. So we thought we would just ease into it. Ease into it. 
Okay. Some of the policy requirements include barring schools from condoning or promoting a view of sexual identity contrary to church teachings and theology on the nature of humanity and God's design. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> <clears throat> and no, that was not me self-censoring there for a change. Uh, the guidelines also require staff to act toward a person according to their biological sex at birth. Students will also be required to act, dress, and use bathrooms in the same way and cannot join sports teams opposite their biological sex. So, everything's the same with these Catholic schools up in Omaha as it always has been, right? Mm. Um, our philosophy going ahead is truth and love. <clears throat> okay, that was self-censoring there. Uh, we share the truth with our students and their families. At the same time, we bring forth our love and compassion, said Deacon McNeil. The policy, however, still allows for current or prospective students experiencing what the Archdiocese calls gender dysphoria to enroll in Catholic schools. We would still admit that student, McNeil says. However, we would lay out what the expectations are with the student and parents. Religious order schools like Creighton Prep, uh, Duchesne, uh, Marianne and Mercy are governed by their own religious orders and may establish their own rules and guidelines. So uh, the, those schools and institutions may go against the archdiocese there. We'll just have to wait and see. All righty. So, well, I think you all kind of know my opinion on uh, the separation of church and state, for one. Now, I do understand these are religiously ran schools. They can do pretty much what they want. So my little mini rant here would be if you are parent of a trans, non-binary, or even of a uh, gay, lesbian, or bisexual student, going to one of these Omaha schools, you might want to consider maybe transferring your child to a public school. Especially if you are open and embracing of your child, because obviously, at least based on this article and my understanding of how things work within the Catholic Church, the Omaha Archdiocese is not open and embracing of your trans, non-binary, or otherwise queer child. So, hmm, some things to consider. <laughs> Alrighty, so let's see here. Do I want to go on to another little news story here for you? Uh, well, we've kind of gone through Nebraska. So how about we uh, go ahead and take our bottom of the hour break just a smidgen early, follow it up with a little bit of music, and then we'll hit some national news for you here on Lavender Hill. So keep on listening. Got some great stuff lined up music-wise for you. Time, though, And this is a little bit of dated material because it was originally published on August 20th. But, you know, I always seem to run out of time before I get to address everything that comes across my way that I think you might want to hear about. And this is from the Washington Post. Jasmine Hilton writing for them. Uh, a judge on uh, the previous Thursday dismissed a complaint against the Montgomery County School Board uh, by parents who alleged that the system's student gender identity guidelines violated their state and constitutional rights. And you're like, okay, Montgomery County School Board, where are we talking about this? Huh? Well, Maryland. Just to let you know. All righty. 
uh, three parents who filed anonymously in 2020 against the Montgomery County Board of Education argued that the guidelines curtailed their ability to direct the care, custody, education, and control of their minor children under the 14th Amendment, according to a memorandum opinion. The parents said that the Montgomery County Public Schools 2020-2021 guidelines for student gender identity were designed to work around parental involvement in a pivotal decision in their children's lives and that the guidelines enable school personnel to allow children to transition socially to a different gender at school without parents' notice or consent. Pardon me. One provision advised that school personnel speak with the student about the level of support they receive or anticipate receiving at home before contacting the student's parents, according to the memo. And to me, that's just kind of, you know, duh. Uh, you know, not everybody is going to be safe at home when they come out, no, whichever closet it is that they're coming out of. Unfortunately, that is a truism. Uh, The guidelines also advise schools to develop a gender support plan with the student and their family if the family is supportive of the students using an MCPS intake form that, according to the filing, would be kept confidential. In the U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland, Judge Paul W. Grimm sided with the MCBE, that's the... um, um, county school board there uh, with their argument that the guidelines advance the state's goal of protecting students' safety and privacy, according to the memo. Uh, MCBE certainly has a legitimate interest in providing a safe and supportive environment for all MCPS students, including those who are transgender and gender nonconforming, Judge Grimm said in his memo. And the guidelines are certainly rationally related to achieving that goal. Grimm also wrote that the parent's complaint has no specific allegations about the application of the guidelines in counseling their own children. The parents complained the guidelines instructed school employees to, quote, withhold information from them about their children's gender identity. But Grimm concluded in the memo that the guidelines do not exclude parents or encourage children to distrust them. The parents' reading was unsupported, he said, and the guidelines were designed to be flexible. The guidelines carefully balance the interests of both the parents and students, encouraging parental input where the student consents, but avoiding it when the student expresses concern that parents were not, or excuse me, would not be supportive, or that disclosing their gender identity to their parents may put them in harm's way, Judge Grimm said further in the memo. Frederick W. Clayburgh Jr., an attorney representing the parents, said he has advised his clients to appeal this decision. They are the ones that are to give guidance to their children and to help them through this very important step, Clayburgh said. Going on to say, not necessarily to the exclusion of schools, but schools can't do that to the exclusion of parents either. A Montgomery County Public Schools spokesperson did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Uh, Claybrook went on to say, we don't want our trans kids to be mistreated or bullied or harassed in any way, but we want the parents to be able to help in the transition, to help in the process, not to be excluded from it. Mr. Claybrook and those parents and anybody else who may be involved or looking at this, my interpretation of those guidelines, granted I have not read them letter for letter, but my interpretation of those guidelines is very similar to Judge Grimm's. 
Parents are not being excluded unless the child wants them excluded. It's not the school that's excluding them. The child does not feel safe getting their parents involved at that point in time. That could change. Maybe they themselves, the child that is, need to have a little bit more time, some counseling, some, some discussions with people who know more before they feel comfortable and confident in going to their parents about these issues. I know they're minors, but they still have some rights. And that they don't want their parents to know something that is deeply personal about themselves while they are coming to grips with it. Nobody's getting harmed here. Mm. Okay, I'm not going to get on any soapboxes today. I'm just going to, you know, like kind of you know, tap them with the toe and see what happens. Alrighty, well, where should we go next? Because, oh my goodness, there's all kinds of things that we could be talking about here. Alrighty, so I think this might be the last that I have of education. It's kind of fitting since school just started that I focus on education, right? Uh, Kentucky's only out trans student athlete has been banned from her sport. This is an article from them. That's them.us. Uh, Samantha Rydell writing, and this is from this past Thursday. That would be the 25th. Um, let's see here. Once again, Republican politicking has put a target on the back of a lone transgender child who just wanted to play a game with her friends. Early this year, amid what her parents told the Washington Post is an uncharacteristic athletic streak, 13-year-old Fisher Wells signed up for middle school field hockey, hoping to run around and have fun with her peers at Westport Middle School in Louisville, Kentucky. But even after Wells personally signed up enough of her fellow students to make a full team, Kentucky High School Athletic Association rules banned her from playing on the field, requiring that Wells undergo sex reassignment, a procedure not recommended for trans youth in order to play. Uh, Wells is the state's sole out transgender athlete, according to activists and lawmakers who spoke to the Washington Post. Wells' treatment or excuse me, Wells' teammates rallied around her, the Post reports, punctuating each goal with a cry of for Fisher. Yet even after Wells was allowed to play out the rest of the season, thanks to intervention from district administrators, the same won't be true this fall. In April, Kentucky Republicans overrode Governor Andy Bashir's veto of SB 83, the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, barring trans minors from school teams that match their gender. The laws banning trans children from school sports have proliferated across the U.S. this year. It's not clear whether they'll stick or for how long. In July, a federal judge ordered an injunction blocking one such law in Indiana based on the strong likelihood it violated a student-athlete's right under Title IX non-discrimination protections. The transphobia is so blatant it's almost laughable. One of the bill's keys, and that's quoting the author there. Uh, one of the keys, uh, one of the bill's key sponsors, Senator Robert Mills, told the Post he believes anti-trans bans are justified not only to protect cis women but to prevent what he believes is rampant fraud. Wow, there, Senator Mills. I think you may be a little bit uh, overreacting. Okay, not a little bit. That's just. Mm. 
what rampant fraud. Okay, anywho, let's take a music break before I do get up on a soapbox that I don't really want to get up on. And uh, we're going to hear a cover, another cover. Uh, This one is Colton Ford covering R.E.M. Yes, I like R.E.M. I hope you do too. Here we go, Losing My Religion. Colton Ford covering one of my favorite REMs, Losing My Religion. All righty. Well, I told you I was done with Nebraska news. I was wrong. I was done with Nebraska education-related news. Do I have something? Because, well, abortion is an issue that affects all of us, not just cis women. Uh, You know, it affects uh, trans men. It affects trans women. It affects everybody in one way or another. Those, of course, who are the pregnant individual are the ones that it affects the most. But anywho, uh, the village of Wallace, Nebraska, hit the news here. Ten uh, Eleven now reporting for them on Wednesday the 24th. Melanie Standiford uh, writing. Uh, Wallace, Nebraska. On Tuesday, the Village Board of Wallace considered an ordinance that would make performing an abortion, aiding or abetting an abortion, and abortion-inducing drugs illegal within the borders of their community. The measure was brought before the Village Board as a result of a citizen initiative petition filed by Wallace resident Jim Smith. While Smith only was required to collect 29 signatures for the initiative. He turned in a total of 42 signatures now. Okay, those of you who may not be familiar with small town Nebraska, that's how it works. And small town is small town. You know, I'm from a community that, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a community that the town itself, the village really, because it's not even on the county map, or at least it wasn't when I was growing up there, had less than 100 people in it. Didn't even have a village board. That's how small it was. But anyhow, uh, at the special meeting in Wallace, the Village Board considered Resolution 22-33, a resolution to submit the ordinance outlawing abortion to the electors of the Village of Wallace at the next general election held on November 8th. A motion was made by the board, by, uh, board member Anna Griffiths and seconded by board member Cindy uh, Wickeser. The resolution to send the ordinance to the ballot passed five to zero, so unanimously. Uh, Village Board Chairman Charlie Andrews shared that the Village Board did not want to pass the ordinance for the city, or village, but thought that it was best to let voters decide the issue. And I, you know, in a way I kind of agree, especially when it's something like this, and it's very clear that it's a conservative community give an opportunity for those who may not be quite so conservative to have a say in what's going on. So that'll be decided come November 8th there in Wallace, Nebraska. And in related news, yes, I do have related news, even though it's not Nebraska, we're going down to the not-so-great state of Texas. My apologies to my friends and family down there. From Bloomberg, uh, Biden's bid to ensure emergency abortion access is rejected in Texas. Tina Davis writing for Bloomberg on August 24th. A federal judge in Texas ruled a Biden administration effort to ensure access to abortion and medical emergencies was unauthorized in an early win for the state officials. Mm -hmm. Texas filed the suit against the Department of Health and Human Services in July, challenging the position that emergency abortions for medical reasons take priority over state bans on such procedures. 
In a ruling late Tuesday, uh, U.S. District Judge James Wesley Hendricks, a Trump appointee, preliminary halt, preliminarily halted enforcement of that measure in Texas. The rule issued under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or uh, EMTALA, is one of the administration's main executive responses in the aftermath of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning the constitutional right to abortion. The Justice Department cited the rule in a separate lawsuit it brought against Idaho for its abortion restrictions. Uh, to quote White House Press Secretary uh, Karen Jean-Pierre, in a statement, Texas filed this suit to ensure that it can block medical providers from providing life-saving and health preserving care. Because of this decision, women in Texas may now be denied this vital care, even for conditions like severe hemorrhaging or life-threatening hypertension. It's wrong, it's backwards, and women may die as a result. You can read more about that if you want to uh, by checking out Bloomberg. Like I said, I'm going to be posting the links that I've discussed today, and at least one that I haven't, it looks like, uh, over on the Facebook page for Lavender Hill. It is almost time for me to get ready to hand things over to Deb Anderson with The Women's Show. Uh, she is going to be doing an interview today with Margaret Slovak uh, starting shortly after the top of the hour. Uh, Margaret Slovak is a uh, jazz instrumentalist, uh, guitarist in, per in particular, and going to be uh, talking about her new release, Ballad for Brad, on the Sweethearts and Badasses of Americana and Beyond series here. And then later on, Deb's going to be joined by Rick Peters, uh, sharing some of his favorite uh, women vocalists and instrumentalists uh, for the rest of the show. So stay tuned for that. Wanted to remind you all, in case I hadn't told you during Lavender Hill, that I will not be here for the Labor Day weekend blues blowout. I decided I needed to take a break, so that's what I'm going to do. But, you know, tune in. Tom Einick's going to be filling in during that time slot, playing some of his favorite blues for you, celebrating Labor Day and a long tradition here at KZUM, keeping the blues alive in Nebraska. All righty. Well, kind of bluesy a little bit here, kind of jazzy a little bit as well. We're going to have some, uh, let's see if I can actually say this, Gay Adegbalola. And I got it right in my head, but wrong off my tongue, but uh, and got a chuckle out of Deb over that one, too, because it is a bit of a tongue twister for me. I'm just going to have to practice saying her names more because she's got some great music and I want to keep sharing it with you. We're going to listen to her song, She Just Wants to Dance, because, well, who doesn't want to get up and dance every once in a while? So stay tuned for The Women's Show, all the other wonderful programming here on KZM. I'll see you in a couple of weeks.